Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise. Lord, as those who wander in this world, who uh, seek to be able to stand opposed to you, those who wander from your commandments, who depart from your word, Lord, we pray that we would not be like those people. Lord, hold us close to you and your word. Lord, help us to be able to keep your commandments. Lord, as the nation rages, as the world plot in vain, seeking to burst their, your bonds apart, Lord, let us hold fast and kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Help us to be able to meditate on your scriptures, on your word, on your promises, on your statutes, that your testimonies will be a delight to us as they counsel us, as they point us to the hope of the gospel found in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. Hear now the word Lord from Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and to encamp at the front of Pi-Hi-Hiroth, between Migdol and the sea, and the front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him, and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea at by at by Pi Hi Ha Hiroth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is this because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, 
fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. As we saw last time we're together, the people of Israel are now free. As we step into this new section of Exodus, as they're now free, they're no longer under the reign of wicked Pharaoh. And as we're leaving Egypt, we noticed God's glorious goal of their ultimate plan of him bringing them into the promised land. God's past pledge to be able to bring them into the promised land. And God's immediate imminence as he brought them into the promised land. And in this section, chapters 13 to 18, focus is really on the first two months of Israel's freedom. In these two months, we see the people of God face many problems and conflicts from outsiders, Egyptians, Amalekites, but also internal conflicts from within the people. We know the last time that right at the very beginning, God sent his people the long way round because of their disposition to be able to return to Egypt. And in today's passage, we see the disposition in full force as they face a conflict and their desire and their heart is to be able to return back. We'll be looking at the first half of this conflict with the people of God and against the people of Egypt this morning. What we notice first in verses 1 to 4 is their command from God for them to be able to turn back. We saw last time we were together that God instructed the people to be able to head southeast instead of heading directly northeast. They're going to the promised land, but they're going the long way around, not to be able to go through the land of the Philistines. And the people encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. Now what we hear and read when we read through the Bible and we come across all these names that might be hard for us to be able to pronounce, is there geographical places that the people who the original audience knew exactly where they were. It's hard for us to be able to know exactly where they are now, although archaeologically digs are discovering new uh, biblical sightings all the time. Many liberal scholars 100 years ago said, well, this is why the Bible is false. See, there's no such town here around this region. And yet now archaeologists are being able to discover many of these towns and places. So often when we come to these places, we, we have no concept of this. We don't have a map before us. It's hard for us to be able to understand what's happening. But here, between Egypt and uh, the Promised Land is, is a peninsula, this V-shaped peninsula. The land of the Philistines runs across the top. And then on the left, you have the Red Sea, the Gulf of Suez on the left and the Gulf of Aqaba. On the right, and here, the Israelites are camping at the top of the V on the peninsula on the left. 
And they're going down into the point of the V. That's their plan. That's where the wilderness is. However, the beginning of chapter 14, God tells them to go back around. Go on the other side of the gulf. So no, now longer they're not inside the V, they're going on the outside of the V. They're to camp at Pi-ha-hiroth. And so now they're on the outside. Now again, this does not make a lot of sense to us. As God's plan, God's glorious plan is to be able to deliver them, to be able to save them, to be able to bring them to the promised land, why would you go the other way? Why would you put a sea between uh, where the people of God are and the Egyptians are? Why wouldn't you go in between there? We don't always get to be able to see God's plan of providence, yet in the pages of Scripture we get to be able to see this providential plan in motion. In this case, he does this with these signs and wonders. He told right from the very beginning what he was planning to be able to do. He told them the signs and wonders that were coming. He told them what was going to happen. The people of Egypt would let them go. And so too, in this time, we find out exactly what God is going to do. And God tells Moses that he sees the people of God and they're trapped. Because their location, the Egyptians are going to try and capture them again. Trying to defeat them. Military terms, they're trying to flank them out. They cannot go anywhere because the sea that stands between them and the wilderness. But God, yet again, is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So that he pursues the people of God. As we've mentioned throughout the study of Exodus, God's plan but also his purpose of God's plan is God's glory, the end. We see that clearly, God's words to the people in verse 4, God will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. God has defeated Pharaoh. Pharaoh has let the people go. But Pharaoh wants to be able to fight back. God has won but he has not totally and finally won at this point. But God will finally and totally destroy Pharaoh as he opposes God. This is what Paul explains in Romans chapter 9, that God receives glory in destroying the wicked and showing mercy to his people. So we see the Egyptians carry this out, and God says at the end of verse 4 that By this, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Won't belabor this point, but we've seen, as we've seen many of the signs and wonders, God shows forth his power and punishment as he receives the glory. But also the people would know who he is. Pharaoh in chapter 5 said, Who is the Lord that I should let the people of God or people of Israel free? But by the end, they will know who God is. By the end, the Egyptians will know who the Lord is. Now, some of the Egyptians left when the people of God left in Exodus chapter 12. They knew who God is, and they sought to be able to follow him. And God displays his power, 
And the response from God's display of power should always be a worshipful response. As we realize how powerful and mighty God is, filled with thanksgiving. The psalmist writes in Psalm 9, And those who know your name put their trust in you, O Lord. You have not forsaken those who seek you. And knowing God is not merely some form of intellectual exercise. It's a, it's a heart-driven, emotional response. As God reveals himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they might know him. Not merely know of him, but know him and worship him. And we'll see this throughout the rest of the story of Exodus. That even the people of God do not know who the Lord is. They do not have that heartfelt response of worship and adoration towards God. So again, it's back to the instructions that God gives to the people through Israel, to, uh, through Moses, to be able to turn back. that we might not have the, the detailed providential plan of what God is doing. We might not know the reasons behind God's providence, but we can know the God who is sovereign. We can know the God who works all things together for good according to the, his purposes and plans. As Martin Luther said, I know not the way God leads me, but well, I know my guide. That he's able to be able to understand God's glorious plan, even in the turning back, they might not truly grasp and fathom what God's providential plan is. We also see the people of God respond to God's word. They do what God says. Might not known every detail through and through, yet they still did what God was commanded to them. And as we see, the, the, the plan to be able to turn back, the providential plan laid out beforehand, we see it carried out. And we see Pharaoh's pursuit in verses 5 and 9. As you read through the next scriptures, we're not surprised that what record is recorded in the first opening verses carries out in the next verses. And the people change their minds and they claim that, what is it we have done? We've let Israel go from serving us. Here we see that the ultimate response from why they were let go was not some form of trickery. They actually understand. They lay claim and they said, we did this. We let them go. They've probably got this big pile of bodies they're going to have to bury, and now who's going to dig these holes? And they've let their slaves go. And now they're filled with regret. They wish to be able to take that action back. And Pharaoh prepares the people for war, getting his chariot and the army, 600 chosen chariots and more for battle. Now we noted before that the, as the people of God left Egypt, there, there were numerous, there was lots of them. But these people have never fought any battles. They were equipped for battle, 
Some commentators believe that the Israelites are marching in groups like an army. But the people of God are not ready to fight. They're men, women, adults, children, young, old, carrying their possessions, looking for their flocks, and they're looking after their flocks and herds. And here they're meant to fight against Pharaoh's army, including Pharaoh's 600 best chariots. Now, Egypt is known at this point for having the best chariots. Deuteronomy 17 warns kings to be able to return back to Egypt to be able to get these horses and chariots. Isaiah explains in chapter 31 that many people will go down to Egypt and put their trust in these type of chariots, horses and horsemen, because they're very strong. It's hard for us to be able to try and grasp and fathom a modern equivalent Quite possibly, you could think of major companies like Lockheed and Martin, Lockheed and Martin, who manufacture the world-leading fighter jets, such as the F-35 Lightning or F-22 Raptor. And here, they're known for these chariots, and here, the 600 of the best chariots are now chasing down these slaves. Then we see petrified people in verses 10 to 12. The petrified people in verses 10 to 12. We see how the people of God react. Quite simply, we now see Pharaoh and his army and his chariots all marching down, approaching them as they are sitting ducks. The Bible just says that they feared greatly. A couple of words here, but I think it accurately summarizes what you and I would feel in this situation. This is a movie scene. It would be set up as the people see this cloud of dust gathering on the horizon as they start to be able to ponder. They hear the, the, the ground start to shake, the sound of hooves coming, the murmuring of the crowd from the back of the people as they start to be able to get, grasp and fathom what is actually coming upon them, the scream of the children and, and the people running, trying to get to the front of the line to be able to avert all of this Chaos. The Egyptians are coming in full force. Chariots and men, the whole army, locking down on them. A fear comes upon them as, as mothers and hold their children tight, as fathers try to be able to stand between their wife and their children and, and the army. They have nowhere to go. Danger is creeping upon them. Death looks like the next chapter in their life, the end of their story. And they begin to cry out once more as they cried as there were slaves in Egypt as the bitter rod of slavery was upon them. And here they are now trapped and thinking this is it. But listen to the great fear which is found in their questions. They see the next thing in their life is death and defeat. Is this because there's no graves in Egypt? You have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done? Bring us out of Egypt. Is this not what we said in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians. 
For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They, understandably, as we would in this situation, wear their emotions on their sleeves. God had told them to be able to turn back, so now that they are trapped between this sea and the wilderness, they see the Egyptians in the sight of war, and now this is exactly what God told them would happen. When they see war, they'd want to be able to go back to Egypt. There's no way for us to be able to exhaustively look at this. But there's three major responses here from the people of God as they put forth this complaint. Firstly, the people of God blame Moses instead of trusting God. They blame Moses instead of trusting God. They say, you have taken us. You have brought us out. What have you done? And I think this is all of Moses' doing. And it's all his fault. They've been told right from the very beginning what is going to happen, the instructions from God, and yet they seek to be able to blame Moses instead of trusting God's word. Secondly, the people fear Pharaoh instead of fearing God. The people fear, fear, fear Pharaoh instead of fearing God. They see the army coming towards them and they're struck with fear. Again, understandable. What would we do in this situation? As a cloud of dust comes closer to their camp and they think of the strength of Pharaoh and not the power of God, they had witnessed all the signs and wonders. And yet they still thought Pharaoh was stronger than God. This will be their weakness. And they will not enter the promised land, many of them, because they fear man over having faith in God. Thirdly, the people seek comfort instead of finding contentment in God. The people seek comfort instead of finding contentment in God. They would rather be slaves in Egypt than free in the wilderness. Now granted, at this point in their life, it would have been hard for them to be able to think of this. However, they only see two options. Serve Pharaoh or die in the wilderness. However, part of their argument is that they said this when they were in Egypt. They said they would rather serve Pharaoh, leave us alone. They would rather live a life of comfort, even though in being enslaved, to be able to face conflict. Finding contentment and trusting in God in the uncertain life in which they live. And all of these sins which they, they explain here will come out in their wilderness wanderings. All of these issues will rear their ugly head once more. That they will always seek to, a way to be able to turn back, to be able to return to Egypt. But here we come to the height of this part of the story, although the first half of the story. Here they're told to be silent. See in verses 13 to 14. Moses responds to these petrified people. 
as Pharaoh's army comes down and descends upon them. He tells them four things that they need to be able to do. Now you would think in a moment like this, this is when Moses would stand up, and although Scotland wasn't around, William Wallace hadn't existed yet, he'd put on his best William Wallace accent and start declaring to them, and say, one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell your enemies that they, take, they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. But Moses doesn't stand up and give some riveting speech for them to be able to carry out that we're going to die in the wilderness, but it's going to be for a just cause. You are now free today. You have never been free in your whole entire life. He doesn't say that. He points them to God. He tells them not to fear, to stand firm, to see and be silent. Quickly, just looking at those four things that he says. Firstly, fear not. The first commandment here is do not fear. A simple statement But yet, as we envisage the the enormous army that is marching towards the people of God, and you, you merely just say, don't fear. Of course, Moses doesn't mean just stop being afraid. Stop it. And when we see a command like this, we need to be able to continue to read. Because often if we merely just say, stop it, stop fearing, We don't actually understand the thrust of what the Bible points to. We see commandments and they say, stop sinning, stop it. Stop being anxious, stop being worried. And when we see a commandment like this, do not fear, there's always a second part that follows. Why are we not to fear? Hear the command as we see others say, do not fear. The Lord will fight for you. The reason that they are not to fear is not because they've just got to stop that emotional response from this coming upon them. There's a real threat before them. There's something to be worried before them, but... That's not the whole picture. The commandment, do not fear, is because God is stronger, God is bigger, God is mightier than Pharaoh's army. Stop looking at the army and look to what God will do. Do not fear because God is on your side. Do not fear because God will defeat your enemy. And so too, when we come to these commandments, we need to not merely just look at the command not to fear. Why shall we not fear? Look to something that drives us to God. Shift our gaze from the army to the Lord. From anxiety to the flowers of the field, which drives us to the Father in heaven who clothes the flowers in the field, who feeds the sparrow. The second thing that here Moses tells them is stand firm. 
Again, this is not merely just a commandment to stand where you are. Don't move. That again, when we see stand firm in the Bible, is always connected to some form of object, to stand on something. In the New Testament, it is either your faith in Christ or Christ himself. And again, we read these commandments which were required to be able to do, and we seek we need to be able to do it ourselves. We need to stand firm. If our foot slips, then we're the one that falters. If we're, we're the ones that's not doing it right. But again, it drives us to something bigger, something outside of ourselves. In this case, we're to stand firm because the Lord will fight for them. They have something to stand firm on. They stand firm in trusting in God's strength and God's might, not in their own ability. We can begin to understand this principle when Paul instructs the church in Ephesus to be able to stand firm, put on the whole armor of God. Again, we're standing firm not in ourselves, we're standing firm in Christ, as our union to Christ, as we put on Christ's salvation, his righteousness, having faith, truth, the gospel of peace, the Spirit come upon us as we stand firm knowing These come from Christ and not from us. The next thing they're commanded to do is to see. I'm sure when Moses said this to the people in the crowd, turned around and said, we're looking, Moses, and it's not looking good. We're looking. Do you see? Do you see the 600 chariots? Do you see this army coming down to us? Do you see a way out of this? Do you see how this can be turned out for good? How is this not going to result in death? But again, the commandment is not merely just look. The look is to something specific. Look. See the salvation that the Lord will work for you today. What you see before you right now will vanish, and salvation will be yours. The Lord is going to perform another sign and another wonder right before your eyes. Now we must continue to be able to think about this as we read through the whole book of Exodus. As we see the wilderness and their wanderings, that many of these people will not make it into the promised land. And here they are, they saw all the signs and wonders in Egypt. They'll see the sign and wonder right before their very eyes. They will see this great salvation found at the Red Sea. They will sing the song with Moses. They will see the Lord on Sinai and all of his glory and and array and splendor in which promotes them to fear God. Yet, they will still have a hard time having faith in God. The seeing is not necessarily believing. As many people saw Christ and yet rejected him. The last thing that the Lord says to them through Moses is to be silent. The people are God uh, commanded to be silent. Now, we understand 
This sometimes is just a response. This is not a sinful response from God that he's crying out, stop your complaining. But often what this silence means is not merely meaning to stop speaking. But often this word means being absent, not doing anything. Often paired with the cries to the Lord when believers feel that they have prayed and they see that they feel like God is not responding. God is absent. God is not there. God is quiet. But God tells the people to, to be quiet, do nothing, sit back. The Lord will fight for them. They do not need to fight. They only need to watch as spectators. And salvation comes to us the same way as we watch God save us. As our membership vows clearly say, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God and the only Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel? What do we do? We receive and rest. In comparison, to be able to give, to strive, to work for our salvation. We are the ones who are silent. We are the ones that rest in God and that salvation which He offers to us. Now this might seem like a strange point to be able to end a sermon. That end of the TV show says, now what's going to happen? Tune in next week to find out. But I do think it's important for us to be able to fathom and to place ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites. They don't know what's going to happen. And yet all they have is God's word to be able to put their faith and their trust in. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know how God's going to deliver them. They seem trapped and ensnared. They, they see the sal- they, they're told to be able to look for this salvation, what God is going to do, and yet, in this moment, they don't have that before them. We need to be able to see this, this pinnacle point of what's happening in this part of the story. That all they have is God's Word. They've been told what's going to happen from the beginning, but that doesn't mean that they know exact details. They don't doesn't mean that they're not going to have worries, concerns. It's not going to be difficult for them. Now we will see God fulfill their His promise that He will fight for them, that they will see this salvation. He hasn't told them how He's going to do it. He hasn't told him when He's going to do it. Besides today. You're called to be able to walk and live by faith. And so too, God calls us to be able to live in the same way. To live not by sight, but by faith. To be able to shift our gaze, whatever is before us, whatever problems or woes, and to be able to shift our eyes to the Lord. Or as the author of Hebrews says, let us lay aside every weight of sin that clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of God, 
the throne of God? How do we run the race? By looking at Jesus. Fixing our eyes on him. The one who brings this salvation to us. The one who has promised this salvation. The one who is with us during these trials and worries and woes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Our gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise. Lord, as we read through the pages of Scripture, Lord, we see of the reality of ourselves. Lord, that our responses are the responses of those of the people of God. Lord, we think we would be better to go back and turn in our sin and our sorrows and our misery. Lord, that we do not like the idea of conflict or battle. Lord, that we fix our eyes on the the things that are before us, the problems of this temporal world, and yet, Lord, you have told us to be able to, through faith, look unto you, to run this race which is set before us, not looking at the obstacles or hurdles, but looking at Christ, the founder and perfecter of this faith in which you have given to us. Lord, help us to do that, for we know we are weak and needy. We need your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.